0: Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 106, recorded on April 30th of 2020. This is the Photo Geekery Show, where I'm your host, Don Kamarechka and I dig through the news of the week to find the geeky, the technical, the interesting stuff in the photographic news uh, or the photographic industry that is newsworthy and uh, worth discussing, uh, discussing, if I could speak today, um, and uh, geeking out about, usually with a co-host, and that host today is one of my favorites, and that is Steve. Steve Brazel back in the co-pilot seat. Steve, thanks for being. I'm going to be discussing with you. <laughs> yes, seriously. I have a cup of tea in front of me here. There's nothing, nothing fancy, and uh, no no beer or whiskey in me today. But I've got my diet coke. I am ready to go. Good to see you, my friend. Good to see you too. Uh, how, how Have you been? It's been a couple of weeks since we chatted. I'm good.
1: As as we're recording that, you know, here in California, we're still on on you know self quarantine, you know, lockdown, and uh. I actually, in some ways, I'm enjoying it. It's just more time with my wife, and we go out for walks, and, and I'm doing a lot more podcasting. And it's just, it's a lot of, you know, it's, it's not to me that hugely different because I've always worked from home, but doing good, doing healthy. That's yeah, the main I, thing.
0: I've normally worked from home as well. It's a bit different from my wife, who uh, is a, uh, a nursing instructor and is now, she's got students online. My daughter, normally in daycare, she's always running around the house, um, and uh, we are totally milking nap time for the last month or two that we're going to have it. Uh, we could train her out of it right now. No, that, that's our little luxurious uh, one to two hour brief moment of productivity and sanity in the middle of the day. So
1: Well, and y- your wife actually has it good in that she has a geek at home to help her with the online learning, whereas I know teachers that you know are struggling because they've never had to do online training. They don't understand some of the technology involved. And it makes it a little more difficult and that, that kind of, if, if you know or live with somebody that's got some tech mind, it does make it easy.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I had to figure out uh, uh, Cisco's WebEx, uh, which I'd never used before, but I had, you know, familiarity around certain yeah. things like it. Uh, and my wife had used Skype many times, but as soon as you throw something different out there, uh, you know, panic, frustration, and where do you go from there? Uh, so I'm glad I could help. But yeah, you're and, right and
1: WebEx, by the way, for those people wondering, is is similar to Zoom or GoToMeeting or. Uh, it's video quality to me is much lower resolution than some of the other ones that are out there, but it's very,
0: very stable, and that's a key in business. Exactly, and so a lot of businesses, a lot of larger corporations have invested in that platform for its stability. Um, but hey, we're using Zoom to see each other here. We've got Zencaster doing the recording. That's the behind the scenes uh, as to the tech that we oh, use. Oh, no, you shared your stuff. secrets. Yeah. Oh, I, I share all of my secrets. There, There is no secrets, but uh, – uh, and things here have been great, uh, plugging away on my book when I've got the uh, the amount of time to uh, to really just have some clarity of mind to, you know, take complex things and distill them down into basic things. And uh, I actually want to give a shout out to everybody that's backed the book or pre ordered it because I've had a lot of them, uh, a lot of people that have supported me uh, asking for sample pages. I'll freely give that out right now, um, about a half the book that is mostly press ready. And uh, even after it's been poured over by a good number of people, I'm still finding uh, reports of a typo here and there or, you know, a comma that uh, should or shouldn't be in a specific location. And um, I I so love getting that feedback because it's an easy, quick change for me to make um, that even if I hire a dozen, uh, you know, proofreaders to figure that out, there's still I've never seen anything published without a typo. There's always going to be something. Everything. Uh, and there'll but, be
1: debate over an Oxford comma if there's no typos. So. Yeah, I'm
0: I'm pro-Oxford comma, just for the record. Yeah, but, me too. Uh, <laughs> so um, the, uh, the, the, the book is coming along great. And now that I can see, I just, I feel good when I, you know, add in a letter or remove a letter because there was a typo or something. And so thank you to everybody for doing that.
1: Well, and by the way, I did get, because I did back the book, uh, I did get the latest update that you did through Kickstarter, uh, which was wonderful to read um wonderful to see the update and i'm i'm still looking forward to the book
0: and uh there was a few curmudgeonly responses and you know if you're really just uh you know in a grumpy mood and you want to be pessimistic that's fine i'll I'll give you a refund and there's like two people out of the thousands of people that have backed this thing that are just uh kind of you know sticking their their finger up at me and that's fine if if you don't support me then go away i'll i'll pay you what you paid me to just go yep. away and stop complaining um all right well onward and upward from there oh to, i'm excited about today to uh, to the stories of the week and um so i'm glad that there's still some interesting industry news for us to discuss because things have slowed down but uh, some topics especially the first one i'm so glad that i asked you to be on this episode when this was announced um reported by dp review OnOne announces 360 Degrees, uh, a cross-device sync service for editing and managing images remotely. Now, this is something that um, you can, if you wish, you can use their built-in, you can pay a certain amount to have, I think it's up to a terabyte worth of storage uh, within their platform. Which a lot of other people do as well, including Adobe. In fact, Adobe doesn't really set you a limit. You b- basically pay per terabyte of usage, or they might break it down into smaller numbers. But um, This is actually specific, two specific tiers, 200 gigabytes and one terabyte. Right. Um, now- I've always been kind of hesitant, especially with uh, Adobe's uh, stranglehold uh, on their users with their subscription model, which On1 hasn't done. They do have a subscri- uh, subscription model, but you can get the standalone versions of any product um, and uh, and kind of uh, have ownership over that. But in Adobe's world, if I were to use their cloud service and put all of my images in Adobe's cloud, and then I want to cancel my cloud subscription with Adobe, well, they, they they have me then because now I'm stuck in that platform and I have to spend a lot of time and effort to pull all of that down. Where am I going to stick it in the interim? If I don't have any local storage for me to then find another person. And if you are like most people, your upload speeds are much slower than your download speeds. So to reset everything and push everything back up into the cloud. Um, yes, there's always caveats. Some people, some, um, uh, backup companies will let you like send them a hard drive uh, to to seed things and get things started, but that's not really integrated into how you can access your images and so on and so forth. So Steve, w- what is different about what On1 is offering here uh, in addition to using their cloud service? Well, first of all, I'm not sure
1: that on this story, you and I will be on the same page, which is exciting. Yeah, it's exciting and, and interesting. So First of all, you've always been able to kind of do this. Your, your point about Adobe being proprietary, and if you upload everything to Adobe, and here's the key distinction there, is the word upload. This is a sync service. It's not you upload it to their cloud and then your devices access that centralized cloud location to pull copies and edit. This is actually synced from your local device. It can be your NAS. It can be your computer. You can even choose to store your full-size images in their cloud. But again, key distinction here is you're syncing your originals up. Now, here's the key. It's still proprietary. This is no different than Adobe in many ways. There is no standalone app for 360. The standard On1 editing suite, On1 Raw, yes, you can still buy a, a standalone subscription for that. But this service is still a proprietary service. It still requires upload and sync. It still requires a subscription to use the specific part of it that we're talking about today. And my biggest issue, everybody I know that says I'll never use DNG because Adobe always said it was going to be open source and it's not really and it's not compatible with everything and it's still an Adobe thing. They still own it. They didn't, you know, blah, blah, blah. This whole service is based on a brand new proprietary raw format. The concept being this raw format is only 25% the size of the original. They're tossing 75% of your data away to create the new raw. That to me concerns me. There's too many different raw formats out there now. That's number one. And two, again, You could do this anyway. If you've got a Synology, you can set up remote access to your Synology and access your files whenever you need.
0: I can. uh, And and I do have a Synology NAS. And so that's that's what uh, everything is backed up on. And I'm not going to put that into the cloud. I've got like 16 terabytes worth of stuff. Some of it would never, ever need to be accessed again. Uh, Why do I keep it? Well, you never know. Like if I need to go back and do a demonstration on a particular snowflake photo, I might need to go and grab one of the original uh, raw uh, focus stack slices. Uh, so everything just stays on there in perpetuity. And I've got enough space for that. But there's no reason why I would upload that uh, massive amount of data to the cloud. Right, right. It's too uh, much. But Although you wouldn't need 16 terabytes up there.
1: You'd only need 25% of it in theory.
0: In theory, yes. Now, the the issue is finding the data right? Because uh, on one photo raw is a digital asset manager as well. And so if I need to use something to actually sort through my raw data, uh, based on image metadata, you know, uh, I I mean, date taken, that's how the data gets uploaded, I could find it by that. But that's such a narrow metric that it's almost never something that I keep in my mind when something was taken. Um, So to have the digital asset manager be a part of that, and have the ability for all of my stuff. Say if I'm traveling and I'm in a hotel room and I just have my tiny little Microsoft surface. Um, and, uh, I don't carry a whole lot of data on that. Uh, and I need access to something from six years ago because some client has asked to license something for some reason, uh, and I would just like to be productive in my time. Now, instead of just blindlessly hunting through my, uh, my NAS through numbered folders, I can use a digital asset manager that I've already set up, configured, organized, and have understood to track down that information. Except, and this is key, you're going to be limited
1: to one terabyte. So in advance, before, you know, let's start with the premise, the mutually agreed upon premise, that the idea of this is that you're away from home, client calls, Don, I need this image, I need it right away. The idea would be that you could go in and get that image, tweak it even if needed, because it's been three years since you edited it. Okay, except you'll have to know at some point in advance that that has to be in the pool of images In that one terabyte of storage, which, as we've agreed, you've got 16 terabyte, you would need a quarter of that. So you would need four terabytes of storage. You only get one. You're going to have to come up with a one terabyte subset of images to put into the cloud. And the possibility is the client calls for one that was not in that sync data.
0: Right. Uh, It it could happen. Uh, But the Synology method, you can still get to it. Well, if it, it'll be a needle in a haystack, sure, I could bring the whole haystack. Well, um, I would argue that's your naming convention, then. That's your file and naming convention. I suppose. If, like, I have my, uh, my master files, which are all of my edited works. And uh, those are either TIFFs or JPEGs, depending if I'm sizing them for, for print or for web. Uh, and uh, so I can, I can sync that. Uh, and I don't know how it would handle non-RAW files if it does something with its own uh, system. I haven't actually tried this out yet uh, to, to see exactly how it operates. Uh, nor do I know with certainty, based on the press release, that you are limited to only one terabyte if you are using that as exclusively as a cloud service, or if you just have access to everything on your NAS, or if there's some go-between or level of interoperability uh, between them. I must have read it different than you then, because... The way I read it, it
1: was very, very clear that you're going to save 75% on their compressed raw files. Obviously, it's a lossy compression, so that that's an issue there with me. Um, but the way the press release is worded, they're specifically saying prices for 200 gigabytes and one terabyte – I suppose maybe they've got the option to do 2 terabytes and it's just double the price. I I
0: don't, I don't
1: I don't know, but let's go back to something you said that's totally off subject. You said that you keep your originals and they're either tiffs or whatever. Do you not keep the original RAWs and you only keep the edited TIFFs or do you? Oh, no,
0: I, I keep the the original RAW files. They are in a folder labeled RAW files. Okay. And okay. for anything that's been edited, it's in a, a folder called processed images. Uh, and th- there's no RAW files within that. And now the processed images folder um, is multiple terabytes in size. Uh, and what I do is just as a, as a backup methodology, and I should do it more often than I do. Typically, it's, you know, once every couple of months, uh, I... I uh, Update a portable hard drive that I have here at home. It's tucked away somewhere uh, hidden. And, uh, you know, I'm not visiting family anytime. Uh, but when I go and I visit, then I just swap it with whatever one I've given them. So there's an offsite, relatively current backup of whatever I had uh, and I'd been working on up to that point. I also have one that I would typically uh, swap out once a year in a safety deposit box at the bank um now that's it's kind of a sneaker net kind of storage and and that's fine when you're just you know doing uh you know bulk backups of stuff uh and on my nas it's got uh raid six so that's dual disc redundancy plus a hot uh, a hot spare Uh, smart uh it's as well equipped as i could be uh within that environment so that if the raid decides to fail overnight um, by the time i wake up in the morning it'll be halfway to fixed uh, or so i hope but Um, There's a lot of things you can do for security and stability, but I, I hope that if I'm reading this incorrectly, maybe it becomes the way that I want to be reading it in the future, that I just have access to everything here. Uh, from my digital asset manager and on one photo raw, that I could then access anywhere I want, even if I don't want to like receive the finished file, if it's just a compressed version of the image for editing while I'm on the road. say I got some downtime if I'm on a on a plane, and I get the you know, I I buy the Wi Fi or whatever it is to work through a series of image edits. I don't need the finished product, I just need to see what the edits look like, which would sync up with my desktop when I have access to the full resolution files as well, right?
1: Yeah. And and you are right. It is kind of unclear. They're saying photos can be viewed, edited, downloaded, both on the desktop and laptops, and and all, all edits are synced. So the question is, if all of your metadata is syncing, is it possible? Let's, uh, I'll make up numbers. You have 100 images total. And space-wise, you're able to sync uh, 50 of them. Right. So there's 50 images that are on your original desktop that are not in the 360 cloud. But is the metadata being synced so that from your laptop on a trip you can see them, but the file isn't online and if you say I want to edit this, it dynamically uploads it? Well, then your computer at home would obviously have to be on. There's a lot of questions here. I guess to me the other the other big issue to me. I keep going back to that compressed raw I just, I'm not sure I trust. We all understand that raw engines differ. Raw engines interpret your your photos in such a way and On1, so I don't use On1, I know you do. On1's raw engine, like Capture One, is supposed to be really, really good. <clears throat> but if you're creating a new compressed raw that throws 75% of that data away, I want to see it before I trust it, obviously. But the pricing seems high to me.
0: Yeah. Well, so let's talk about the pricing. So, um, uh, on one photo rod desktop application costs one off, you know, no subscription, 50 bucks. Right. That's so not I like, the service though. No, it's I, just I like the that editor. Price. And then, uh, the on one 360 degrees starts at fifty nine ninety nine per year, uh, with 200 no, no, no. gigabytes. Say that storage. again. It says the On1 360 degree starts at $59.99 per year for 200 gigabytes right. of storage or one oh nine ninety nine per year with one terabyte of storage. Right. Now, the prices can go up if you want to buy uh, On1 Photo Raw um, and the 360 service together because they are two separate services, although, I mean, they're best paired together. Uh, then it would be $89.99 for 200 gigabytes and $179.99 for one terabyte per year. So now, I'm at that point... At that
1: point, you are subscribing to the raw editor damn as well.
0: Yeah. Which means you'll
1: always be up to date. Okay. But if you just wanted to buy the raw editor, 50 bucks. And then it's $60 a year for 200 gigabytes. That's a lot.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that that's why I think that there might be some mixed messaging here. I'm not sure. asking. $110 some, uh,
1: a year For a terabyte, I get unlimited backup for $60 a year, and I've got, I don't know, 17 terabytes on Backblaze probably right now.
0: Right. Uh, Now, this is a different service, obviously, than Backblaze. Understood. But uh, I'd be very curious to see exactly how much data can be accessed from my NAS if I only have 200 gigabytes of their storage available to throw information up there. Um, Here would be an interesting question, by the way.
1: Let's say that you looked at this compressed raw. I mean, let's assume you look at the compressed raw or they wouldn't have done this. If if they looked at it and went, oh, that's really bad. Let's cancel, right? But let's assume that their compressed raw that's 75% smaller is amazing quality, right? I still wonder if somebody wanted to say, I don't want to use your compressed raw. I want to use this system but I only have a handful of images from the last 30 days that I will ever want to access. I want to use my standard Canon RAW files or Nikon RAW files or DNG files or TIFF files. I want to be able to get to my edited TIFF file instead of your compressed RAW. The question is, can you turn that switch and say, don't use your RAW, use mine. I understand they're going to use more space. I'm okay with that.
0: Uh, there's no indication that that's a possibility right now, but it would be a great thing as whatever this platform is evolves. Or even if I could just say that one image that the client wants, I could just click on a button, uh, and say, right click and say, you know, give me the full raw file for that one. And then wait as a progress bar goes, as it downloads from my NAS all the way up to their service right. and then down to me again, uh, on an image by image basis. That sounds interesting. Uh, I have no indication that that's in there right now, but, but for uh, a lot of people, If you think about the
1: standard workflow,
0: if I've got 20 jobs and nine of them are done
1: and closed, and I have currently, you know, 11 jobs in progress, I may want to say, I just want to sync, you know, the three jobs that are going to be critical if I'm away.
0: Yeah. And again, uh, and you can select the question is format, right? I I like that. This is a, a platform specifically using my data locally and not having to host everything in the cloud. This is something that nobody else is doing.
1: You're not uh, really using your data locally though. You're are well, accessing the copies that are in the cloud if you're remote.
0: And I might be able to switch that. I'm not sure. I haven't played with it yet, but I'm I going to. I don't
1: I don't think it's a secure pipe into your house.
0: Um it's not a VPN yeah. service. That's right. It, uh, I'm going to do more research, Steve. This is Kay. this is going to be interesting and I'm going like to play I said, with it. I'm, I'm excited. This is a good day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But now don't misunderstand me. I'm I'm I'm
1: being Mr. Downer here. That's not my intent. I'm just saying I don't see this. I I need to know more before I say that this is a replacement for standard remote access to images right now.
0: Right? Well, no, fair enough. Or heck, even if I could just bring up a bunch of my data uh, and find out exactly where an image is stored via the digital asset manager on my NAS and then access my NAS remotely to pull that file up, even that would be an asset for me.
1: Are you telling me there's no remote? When you do your Synology, I haven't, I haven't remotely accessed a Synology in a while. When you remotely access your Synology, which effectively goes through their servers there's no file browser search type thing where you could search based on a naming convention.
0: But like if, if I'm looking for DKP two, five, seven, nine, uh, you know, dot, uh, whatever raw file format from Canon or, or Lumix, whatever camera it was at the time. Uh, then I have like a bunch of them, but I don't even know what I'm looking for. I, uh, you can't,
1: you can't search file contents for metadata.
0: Uh, no, you cannot search for that kind of information in metadata, Mm. the EXIF information. That's too bad. Yeah. I wonder if there's a plugin that allows that. There could be. I, I haven't, uh, dived into that either. You're putting me on the spot here, Steve.
1: No, I'm Uh, just, these (laughs) are the things that go through my head because I don't sleep at night.
0: (laughs) Oh, the the things an insomniac worries about. Yes. All right. Let's go into something else insomniacs worry about, especially if you are an executive at a camera company. Um, Also from DP review, Canon's Q1 financial report shows the image systems, net sales and profits are down 13.9% and 80.6% year on year. So the first number is net sales down almost 14% and profits are down over 80%. Wow. Okay. I mean, we knew it was going to be bad. We knew that the industry was taking a bit of a turn. Um, now, if you look at the actual numbers here, as I'm sure you have, Steve, um, y- you see that, thankfully, um, the operating profit, it's still in the black, right? Yes. It, they're not in the red. They're, uh, they're making, I-, I don't know if this is in millions, uh, but it says 0.9. I'm guessing that's like they've made $900,000 uh, if, if it's in millions wow. um, for that quarter. That's that's really scraping the line. Um, but it, it's still in the black. So, wow, that's... Uh,
1: well, you know, compare that. They're saying the number that they give in the article is that they're down operating profit minus 80.6% year over year. But, you know, you have to take the numbers in reality. They were never making 70% profit to begin with, right? Yeah. So, using the imaging systems division...
0: Last year, 2019 first quarter, it was 4.7 was the yeah, profit. But we were thinking about that being a, a bit of a lower number because of all of the R&D that was put into the new EOS R right? Right. Uh, and so that uh, would sort of uh, sort of filter itself out and say, okay, well, we've put in the money now, profits come later, and profits have not come later. Well,
1: and the truth is they're still doing the R&D because they'd only really released the, the 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 two. And now with the R5, I believe, in fact, I actually believe strongly that the R5 is a big part of this number. There is still a lot of R&D going into what they're releasing in this R5 based on, you know, they they released an updated spec sheet with more specs. This camera looks like it's going to be pretty crazy. And they're doing a lot of marketing on it. Yeah. So R&D, marketing, things like that. That's part of it. But yeah, I mean a drop from a drop from 4.7 to
0: 0.9. Yeah. And now Canon does a lot of other divisions they have. Their office division that has gone up a little bit. Um you know everybody probably buying various uh work from home stuff. Um their medical yeah, good system- point. Yeah. uh, Their their medical systems division is down. Um, I'm not sure exactly why. People are focusing on the crisis at hand and not things besides that in the medical industry, possibly. Um, Industrial applications and others, who knows what that includes specifically, but it's down as well. Uh, And corporate uh, and
1: eliminations has been a loss of 21% or. Forever,
0: <laughs> yeah. I don't know what that is. On, or of 21,
1: on, I should say, on their
0: sheet. Oh, the, these are, uh, I, I, I'm sorry, I didn't even read it. Uh, these numbers are in billions of yen. yes, um, not not percent, billions, right? Uh, so uh, and I was talking, uh, uh, millions of dollars, but it's billions of yen, so it's somewhat comparable if I were to actually crunch the numbers. Um, what is uh do you know what what the yen is worth right now, Steve the, I do uh, not I mean I can look <laughs> it up really quick the, the the global economies have really kind of uh, c- kind of changed in, in the last little while so uh, I'll, I'll look that up later and, and and I'll add that maybe to the show notes to see what that exact number is tell but you right now did,
1: one billion uh one billion us dollars
0: oh wow do, uh, do it the other way what what's nine hundred thousand <laughs> yen worth in US dollars?
1: 1 billion yen in dollars 1 billion yen in dollars is 9 billion uh i'm sorry 9 million
0: okay so we're a little bit under that so that's eight uh eight point something uh million dollars of yeah. profit so but still it's not huge and uh do you think and this i think it'll be an, an important metric do you, do you think the imaging systems will drop into the red for the next quarter Yes, I do.
1: I, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. I don't think this is the end of anything, first of all. As they said in their press release, COVID-19 completely changes the global economic landscape, and it does. You've got factory shutdowns. You've got shortages of supplies, just like we can't get toilet paper. You know, All of this is going to affect them in the long term, I don't believe – and don't misunderstand me. Obviously, income and profit is, is the health of the company. I don't believe overall this is going to affect the health of Canon. And again, you mentioned a critical part here. Like Sony, like a number of these companies, these companies have multiple divisions, some of which are always assumed to subsidize in some ways other divisions or wholly owned subsidiaries. And the
0: the imaging systems divisions, the research there might be bundled into the medical systems uh, because they'll use sensors or technology from one division to another, right? And,
1: and we should state imaging is not what some people would think. So the imaging systems division is camera and inkjet printers.
0: And scanners too, for that matter. And
1: scanners too. Not a huge market. And so for net sales to go down almost 14% year over year, when you're bundling in with the cameras, by the way, scanners, less people are doing scanning. Inkjet printers, less people are, in my opinion, printing photos at least. And Canon is not known to be a leader in office printing, right? I mean, they're not
0: Lexmark, I mean, they're there, or, but they're not. They're uh, there,
1: but they're not HP. They're not Lexmark. They're not you know, Xerox.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so, yeah, I think quarter two is going to be worse. It's nothing I would panic about. They're still making profit right now when I would wager a lot of other companies aren't. We, yeah. You and I have talked about the issues that Fuji's had. We've talked about the issues Nikon has had. This is, this is not, you know, they're not on an island alone.
0: Yeah, and, and their net sales are still huge. I mean, the, the, the net sales, the, the cost of goods that people are buying, right? That, the, that That's a very important metric as well, is only down just about 14%. Um, and so people are still buying everything in that image systems division. They haven't just evaporated all of their sales. I have a question
1: for you. Okay. Do you think, I have an idea on this, but I, I don't want to share it yet. Do you think that this financial report is going to in any way adversely affect the release of, and COVID-19 in general, the release of or sales of the camera body that a lot of people seem to want the R5. Do you think they will delay it? Or do you think they'll release it and get lukewarm results purely because of
0: economy, not because of demand? Uh, Okay, so if they delay it, then the The reason for that would have to be further r and d to get faster chips or a better sensor or anything. But that's another product cycle, unless right?
1: they wanted to hold it for better economic release. I mean, you don't want to release a movie. You don't want to release a blockbuster movie that cost you one hundred and seventy million dollars to make at a time when movie theaters are closed.
0: Well, that's true. And there are a number of people that would clamor for a product on day one, right? Like they, they as soon as you can pre-order it, yeah, your money goes down and you want it day one because that's the kind of fan that you are or that's because uh, you've got a job coming up that would benefit for having this later thing. But if you have no job or you have no economic means uh, to be that fan uh, of that particular brand, then yeah, I mean, you're not going to see those initial sales. Would those people be deterred in perpetuity to then never buy it. I don't think so. So I think that if they were to put it out now, especially because if they're, they've got the, the R5, you know, I'm, I'm going to assume it's in the hands of photographers testing it right now. And, and we've, we've seen so much of it um, that they, they are. I've spoken
1: uh, to people who've shot it.
0: Right. So uh, they're, they're at manufacturing readiness just about, and maybe they're still working on firmware or other quirks. But if that's the case, It's got to go out now because the next product that will supersede it uh, or the next product that's going to go under it, uh, they're already in the pipeline.
1: Correct. Correct.
0: Right. But here's the thing. I'm a good example
1: of this. I shoot concerts. There are no concerts right now. I wanted I have a 5D3 and a 5D4. I wanted to replace the 5D3 with the R5. Some days I want to replace the RD, R the the five D four instead, but that's a different story. But I have no shows to shoot. Almost all that I shoot is live music. So while I would love to get that R five and some R series lenses, I probably my my idea that I'm buying that thing when it comes out, like day of release, that may be off now.
0: Well, because I got nothing to use it for. Right, but when you've got uh, gigs again, uh, and you now have the the R5 available, possibly by the time, they're never on sale when they're first released, but maybe there's a sale down the road, eight months, ten months down the road, and you say, okay, well, now I've got gigs again, that's looking even more attractive to me now, especially if in that interim time they release new lenses, whether it... It's canon or a third party uh, has a better lens catalog or accessory catalog available to you, um, then that makes it more of an incentive to say, okay, you know what, uh, the economy's back in terms of, you know, your own personal economy, you've got money flowing in, um, how do I make the best results possible? And what is the best tool? Well, it's the R5. Has it been out for six months? Yes. Will it be replaced anytime soon? Not for the next three years or whatever right. the cycle is for these kinds of products. And so uh, you're guaranteed to have a top-notch camera for the life cycle of the product still.
1: And based, based on how cutting edge it is, it's going to be cutting edge for a while. You know, The other thing I thought about when I first saw the story is those people that are still interested in buying it day of release, I think this will accentuate staged buying. In other words, people are going to buy less kits, maybe people maybe won't go out and replace their lenses with our lenses. They may buy the body, get the body, get used to it, use an adapter ring with their EF lenses and then down the road. Add the other lenses, it just may it may stagger the buying in parts.
0: Yeah, and I think that makes sense. Uh, I think that uh, in general, people are still going to be buying camera gear. At uh, to a lesser degree now, agreed. But uh, but then you might have people that were holding off on all of those purchases during this time, and we might see a surge of uh, of new purchases when uh, when it's economically viable to do so because people are just feeling themselves getting out of date. Yep, I agree. Uh, well, let's hope so. Anyhow, uh, so let's go on to something that's completely out of left field here. Um, I, I shouldn't say that. This was uh, planned and announced over a year ago that Sony was going to be partnering with Light, the company that made, uh, I believe it was the L16. Uh, that is correct. Uh, Point and shoot style camera that had. Uh, a whole bunch, I, I'm guessing 16 different cameras with different size sensors and lenses and focal lengths, and throw AI algorithms and magic sprinkly uh, dust on top of that, and you get a, a final image as a result that could have some superpowers. So, now uh, also reported by DP Review is shoot now, focus later. Multi view lens patent is Sony's latest foray into light field photography. And so, originally reported by Sony Alpha Rumors. Um, the, uh, the, the image here depicts something that looks kind of like a hockey puck that would sit on the front of your lens and it has five separate lenses, uh, inside of it. Uh, what look like lenses and, uh, two other things that might pass information through, uh, in between, um, the, they're in a more static array. So you've got one in the middle then you've got, uh, one in each corner, And, uh, I haven't actually dug into the patent. If I did, it would be in Japanese. So it probably would not give me many secrets. Even the diagrams
1: in the article are in Japanese.
0: Exactly. So (laughs) we, we can kind of guess at this point, um, the images that are depicted in the diagrams appear to have all of the same focal length, uh, which is sort of interesting. Um, so they might not be taking on the exact same approach as the, uh, the uh, light L16 camera, but Let's go back to the L16, Steve. I don't know if I talked about it with you on this podcast or if we've talked about it separately. But uh, especially right after release, it was bad. I mean, you could see seams very clearly between different lenses when the software was trying to stitch stuff together. And I can only assume it's gotten better because that's just the software interpretation of the data and that can evolve over time. And it should. Um, But now you've got... A product that I, I don't want to say it was a failure, but it was off to a rough start and a partnership with Sony to create what amounts to a light field camera for their digital SLRs that I don't think anybody's been asking for.
1: And that's – there you go. That's the big point is who – the last time you were at a cocktail party, who walked up to you and went, man, I really want to buy a Litro," right? I mean, <laughs> this is not – something that's in demand. Now, let me start with this. The L16 from Light is super cool looking, right? Oh, yeah. It's it's cute. It's a conversation starter for sure. I want it just on my shelf behind me, but you mentioned something I think is a key distinction here. You could see seams in the different lens uh, captures. Yeah. One of the problems that we're having now is tech is getting extremely advanced. Artificial photography, right? Computational photography is getting very advanced, but it's getting very advanced through tech companies, right? Yes. Google's original night site, Apple taking an insane number of photos, calculating the best exposure, assembling the photos, and showing you one and having you honestly believe it took one photo. These things are coming from the companies that have the ability, knowledge, and wherewithal to do it. Camera companies are tech companies, but on a different different level. They are not software people. We've all argued before that the menu, they can't even do a menu system, (laughs) right? I mean, let's be honest. The original Sony's mirrorless were just horrible, horrible menu systems. Well, I forget who I heard say it. It might've been Alex Lindsay once on a podcast years ago. And that is they wish that they would design a Canon or a Nikon or a Sony body that had a slide in mount for your phone. And when you dock the phone to it, your phone became the screen. You ran an app on the phone and then anybody's app could power it. You know, just like you can now use CarPlay in your Lexus and, and do away with their, you know, or Toyota and do away with their interface. What we really need is we need a tech company, not not Sony and Light Labs, to pair together. We need Sony and Apple, yes, to pair together. We need Canon and Google to pair together. Canon and some startup that that does AI to pair together. That's the combination that will have people want it.
0: And and I just looked up uh, uh, Light's website here because uh, I, I I typed in um, Light L sixteen to see if I could buy it. No one's selling it. Um, so it's either discontinued or it was never fully released. Um, and Lumen, which is a, a software program that I'm assuming interfaces, uh, with the data from the, uh, the camera, um, is still listed as being in beta. So
1: yeah, it's, it's, you know, this is like you and I have talked about 360 cameras, right? They're cool. Yep. At every conference I go to, there's one guy or girl that wants to stick a 360 in the middle of a group, take the picture. We all never see the pictures. I don't know, you know, we talked recently about the new Ricoh for, you know, selfies. Yeah. That's 360. I don't know anybody that's looking to buy those things, but here's an interesting thought. On on an iPhone, you have portrait mode. Effectively, what portrait mode is doing is using multiple lenses to create a depth map. There are issues with that depth map. So if I do a portrait photo, which I unfortunately do on occasion, of a scotch bottle or a whiskey bottle with a glass in front. Right. Inherently, those lenses miss the edge of the glass. And so the top edge or maybe a side of the glass is blurry because the depth map is wrong. That's right. This, multiple lenses and multiple sensors, could help solve depth map issues. You could have better depth maps. But I will take, I will think, I think I'm correcting but I'm not sure. You said this goes over your lens. Well, I think this
0: is a lens itself.
1: This is a lens. This mounts directly to the camera.
0: It looks that way. It it doesn't show in any of the diagrams that there's an additional lens. I've done a lot of uh, stereoscopic 3D work that have two separate sets of optics within the same barrel um, that have slightly different uh, perspectives on things. And so- Every one of these five uh, primary lenses in here would be seeing things from a slightly different perspective, which in turn, if two lenses can give you a stereoscopic view, you can generate a depth map from that. If you have five of them, then you can generate an even better depth map, Uh, which is how you
1: can refocus after the fact.
0: Uh, Well, refocus, but also do subject separation and blur the background rather than the foreground uh, so that you can get a nice soft background very reliably with this amount of information and computationally, uh, you know, construct a a more pretty photo at the end of it. That's the kind of technology, as you mentioned, smartphones have been using for the last few iterations from Apple and from uh, from Google and Samsung and others. Um, And so now uh, is Sony trying to bark up that tree is sony trying to uh to to give that level of software interoperability artificial intelligence background smoothing etc that has gotten so commonplace and people are so used to on their smartphones to adapt that to their uh their interchangeable lens cameras because if they're doing that again the people that would be buying a sony mirrorless camera they already have a smartphone in their pocket. Well, that's really interesting. So, okay, take this
1: then. What if Sony, I mentioned, we need Apple or Google to pair with these companies, right? Because they've got, they've already, Google was doing it with one lens. Yeah. Right? They were doing a portrait type mode with one lens originally. So here's what it sounds like is, Sony doesn't have the software and tech to do the computational photography that Apple and Google can. So their attitude is, we're going to do our own depth map, but we're going to do it through hardware. At which point, let's make the assumption, you've got Apple and Google doing artificial photography, right? Computational photography to get depth maps and that type of thing. Sony is doing depth maps through hardware. Which would you pick?
0: Uh, Resolution. Is what I would pick, because in this case, <clears throat> based on the patent design, you would be dividing the sensor up into nine squares. Uh, five of them would have images, and then there's two other dots that might be registers of some kind. And, and, and two I'm not blanks.
1: sure what those are. You'll notice they, those don't line up with images on the first diagram.
0: Exactly. They're in between them. So they're, there's supplemental information of some kind. But could be just um, light. The resulting image would be one ninth the resolution of your camera sensor uh, because you're dividing it up into a three by three grid. Right. And so. If or possibly even only five squares. Well, yeah, but uh, if if you have like one of those five squares is what your total resolution is going to be, right? Yes,
1: that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. So if if I bring up a calculator here and you're using an A7R4, which is 60 megapixels, divide that by nine, uh, you're dealing with a 6.66 megapixel resolution final image where everything on a smartphone is going to be just about double that at 12. Yeah, but here's the problem with that. This isn't saying that it requires, that would require a sensor
1: and camera software that knew how to process this. So, and that's one of the questions, by the way, that people had was, are you going to have to edit this off camera, right? Are you going to have to take these images? Is the camera going to be powerful enough to actually take those nine squares or five possibly and align them, set them up, et cetera? Or are you going to download nine raw pieces and have to use proprietary software? Because the way they've described it, you could put this on an A7R 3 it's just the lens. Yeah, the A seven R three doesn't know what nine separate images coming in are. No, well, it
0: wouldn't see nine separate images. It would see one image with, with nine, nine of different the same squares,
1: pieces. right? Yep.
0: And so, if it doesn't know what to do with those squares, it just captures sort of like when I shoot a stereo three D image. Half the sensors for the light eye, uh, the right eye. Half the sensors for the left eye, and uh, the camera doesn't know what to do with that. I would have to deal with that in a separate piece of software, and, and which so you do, which kills um, it. Which My kills phone it. does it. <clears throat> exactly. So you would have to if Sony's doing a first party product like this, then they would have to have some software in the camera to deal with it. Now, if you could combine this somehow, you know, Sony does pixel shift technology. Olympus has a handheld pixel shift technology mode um, that I think takes five frames and goes from 20 megapixels to 50 megapixels in resolution on their um, OMD EM1X. If you could do handheld pixel shift mode to take that, you know, uh, 6.7 megapixels and bring that uh, up to like 18 megapixels, 20 megapixels or so, um, then it becomes viable. Um, but without that, the resolution of this is just far too low for anybody to find useful. Which was the, by the way... When the first Litro came out, remember the original Lytro, the weird shape, the lipstick one. I got yeah, one. the lipstick one. Uh, thank you, Ward, for uh, h- handing that over to me. And it Appreciate was, that, you know, super low resolution for its day, even. Oh yeah, it was. It was terrible. I mean, it was about the same resolution as uh, as my my favorite old camera here, which is the very first camera that Panasonic ever produced, and and I love having that. Uh, yeah. Behind. So it. But, I I just um, don't see
1: this going anywhere. I mean, it's cute. You know, one of the other things that's interesting to me is the way the diagram is drawn. This is pancake size. This is a pancake lens size. Yep. Uh,
0: optically, that's even interesting to me. So
1: it's going to be fascinating how they do this.
0: Well, a lot of, uh, a lot of 3D lenses uh, are tiny. So I, I had this is a full frame lens um, from Leica from 1954. The Leica Stemar R um, that I just happened to have within reach. Uh, and it has two tiny you lenses. You have everything within reach. I I do, I do. Uh, But the actual lens is really, really tiny. There's a little piece on the back that goes into the camera body to keep separation between that. There's no indication of what Sony is is doing uh, within that regard. But if you're doing small image circles, and you would be, because the image circle only has to take up one ninth of the frame, uh, then you can make really small lenses that don't take up a a lot of of real estate.
1: Yeah, interesting. I do want to know what those other two are, because again, there's only five lenses making five squares, laid out like a five on a dice. So that leaves four black squares, two things line up to those black squares. And I do want to know what those are doing.
0: Yeah, I do. Um,
1: So it'll be interesting to watch. I'm not going to buy one.
0: I, well, I don't shoot Sony, but if I could somehow Frankenstein that onto one of my cameras, uh, I'd experiment with it. I'd just like to see what it's all about. Speaking of Frankenstein, that's story four. All right. So story four, I'm so glad this came across my uh, just my news feed on my phone as I was just reading up on stuff uh, in the morning news, often depressing news these days. This one grabbed my attention and I bookmarked it. And I'm so glad I did. Um, From Applied Science uh, YouTube channel, Uh, hypercentric optics, a camera lens that can see behind objects. So let's talk about how a normal lens sees things. You have a field of view, uh usually rated in degrees um, that uh you have you can see more in the background than you can in the foreground and foreground objects generally appear larger than uh than background objects that's just how almost every conventional camera lens works well that's it's not- how every conventional eyeball works right I mean it's perspective it's it it's, it's a standard understood rational perspective until you see this. It's not the way optics can be designed, though. There are other ways to do it. So this video, and I encourage everybody, go to photogeekweekly.com, check out the show notes, watch this video, sit down patiently through the 14 minutes because you will get so many really fun nuggets of knowledge. And then he shows you how you can build one with stuff from the hardware store or on uh, a, you know a, a quick a quick trip to eBay. Eight, nine minutes in, you're going to go, okay, I get the idea. Don't go away. Because it gets better, trust it, me. It, it is so easy to construct something like this uh, at home. So, Steve, you watched the video. Uh, what was your thoughts overall? My first response was, what?
1: You're, okay, so people need to understand that Don picks the stories, usually three, four, or five stories, and he sends a link and his notes, what he thinks. And usually it's a little teeny paragraph of, here's what I think, we'll talk about it. Here was Don's notes on story number four for today. Just watch the video and geek out, we'll talk about it. Because that's all you need to say. This this is one of those videos that when I watched it, I was shocked it only had 143,000 views because stupid things get a million. And this is one of the coolest things that you'll see it, it you, when you listen to the title hypercentric optics, a camera lens that can see behind objects. You think, OK, that's got to be somewhat clickbaity. What are you what are you leading me into? No, it's a camera lens the size of, you know, the size of a house. Size <laughs> of really, a garbage can. Size size of a small garbage can. Yeah, <clears throat> it's it's almost like a five gallon bucket is kind of what it is like two five gallon buckets put together. And it lets you see behind things. And he describes how bizarrely simple it is. It's just a wide-angle lens on a camera and then another lens, specific type of lens
0: in this case, with a huge big diameter. A Fresnel lens, um, correct. you know, Fresnel lenses were originally developed to uh, to construct lighthouses because you didn't want to have a massive piece of glass um, that weighed two tons uh, and could easily break, would be impossible to get into place, et cetera, and uh, difficult or impossible to manufacture. So Fresnel lens is kind of like what Canon also used with their diffractive optics lenses where you can also create- used in stage lighting. Yes, that's and true. Theater and theater lighting,
1: they, fr- uh, Fresnel lenses. Many people mispronounce it as Fresnel. It's Fresnel,
0: French guy uh, uh, named uh, named after. So Fresnel. But uh, the the idea is, at least in this case, it's just a a molded piece of plastic. Um, that has the, the overall shape in different rings of what would be a larger lens, but it's now just a tiny thin piece. And he was using one that was 200 millimeters. Uh, I immediately went onto eBay and bought one, uh, how much $28 U S yeah. And, Uh, and again, it's not glass. mm -hmm.
1: And what's really interesting is it's not even that big. Again, if you imagine the size of this, this tube that he has constructed, it's about the width of a five gallon bucket, like you'd buy at a home supply store, and then just picture taking the lid off of that. Yeah, that's the lens.
0: Exactly, and uh, so l- let's dial it back a little bit to talk about what a telecentric lens is, because you can buy um, you can buy microscope objectives that are telecentric. Some that I have are almost telecentric, but not quite. And so I've got uh, in my hands here, because it's on my desk, because everything's on my desk, um, a, uh, a 50 times uh, Mitutoyo plan APO microscope objective. I
1: feel like now, I could ask you
0: for fingernail clippers right now and you would have them. Uh, they're in a drawer, but they're, they're nearby. Okay, good. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> in this case... I've got uh, uh, a lens that if it was properly telecentric and they make microscope objectives for metrology, for measuring things, If you want to measure the size of things that might be at different distances? You want to make sure that the measurement of something slightly behind is the exact same measurement as something slightly in front, that that doesn't change. Um, and so while a regular lens will have a field of view, uh, a telecentric lens has a field of view of zero degrees. Because, and you can buy like some massive ones um, that are like, you know, a a foot or larger in diameter and they will constantly just measure something within that path. Um, You don't see anything beyond that, but you can't design a telecentric lens uh, to focus on details on like the moon or things of great distances. That's why most of them have very close focusing distances like microscope objectives and so on and so forth. In fact, for, uh, for focus stacking, on a macro scale, something I do a lot of, it's much easier, uh, to have everything align. If you do not have a, uh, a perspective shift, if you do not have a, a field of view that is greater than zero, because then everything is more likely to align perfectly with less algorithmic errors. And so telecentric lenses are great for that kind of thing, but you can go even farther. And instead of having the object in the background being the same size as the object in the foreground, you can have the object in the background be bigger than the object in the foreground. And that is what, um, what we're talking about here, the hypercentric optics. So the classic example that he's using right up close, he's got two dominoes stacked in front of another and you can tell, uh, at least approximately that the domino in the background is, uh, it's going to be like a, an eight or something. Um, because it's got like an array of four on the bottom or maybe five. No, it wouldn't be eight. It's got two on the bottom and one on the top. I don't know what that would equate to, but I'm sure if you looked at all the dominoes, you could figure out which one that was going to be just by seeing the edge of it. That's completely behind the first one. Uh, you're getting some, Yeah, when the, the,
1: the original scene, I'm sorry to interrupt, but, but To be clear, the original scene two identical sized dominoes stacked exactly in front of each other. The one behind is not visible.
0: Yep. In theory. In theory, uh, and so with uh, these uh, these special optics, and again, it's really simple to create a hypercentric design, uh, then you can change the way your camera sees light. But he goes into exactly where you can place the aperture mechanism in certain things. And this was a really fun takeaway for me because if a telecentric lens or a more telecentric lens, if you can't get all the way there, but you can get partly, uh, partly there, it could be useful on a macro photography scale. He suggests at the very back of the lens, put a piece of paper there, poke a hole in it. That's going to shift your aperture farther back towards the film plane and make your lens more telecentric as a result. And so I'm going to have to play with this because I'd never thought of that as a way to create a regular lens into a more telecentric lens. And this bears some experimentation on my part.
1: Well, and the aperture position he talks about just the aperture is the key, but really it's the aperture position. The closer the aperture is to that Fresnel lens versus the further away you get changes how the light enters the lens. And so by moving it back, you can get, you know, what is effectively through the lens, kind of like a refraction or bending of that light, hitting your sensor differently. And you can then effectively see the light from more angles. And the coolest thing here is he didn't want to spend a lot of money. So he built this little round holder for his standard camera with a standard wide angle lens. And one of the comments actually on the YouTube video was classic. The zoom sound created by the sliding of the armature adds to the effect.
0: Well, I guess Because like you the- hear him sliding it. You hear them sliding it, and you, if you listen carefully, you can like see some, uh, hear some air rushing in and out. Because, yes, uh, because of that too. Man, it's just a fun project. Even if you don't want to do it yourself, you'll pick up some little hints of knowledge by checking out this video. And kudos to them for coming out with this. And yeah. It, you can do all sorts of different experimentation. Um, you know, he gives links on Amazon to where you can buy Fresnel lenses. Uh, I did eBay. Uh, you can buy uh, large projection lenses on eBay as well, which was some of the stuff he experimented with and failed. Um, and lots of further reading. So. Check that out again, the show notes at photogeekweekly.com because I'm not going to spout out the YouTube video uh, code to, to bring that up.
1: But yeah, a couple things. First of all, forgetting the fact that you can see behind things, the effect you get as you move that camera forward and backward would be really cool in a certain movie, right? In certain horror movies or something, to would be a cool effect.
0: Or if People, you're questioning somebody's sanity and, and they're in a mental institution and you exactly. want to try to depict what their mind is trying to perceive, uh, that I would be the perfect s- effect. Oh, it's a great effect. He clearly has a UV filter screwed on the end of his lens. I thought that
1: was cute and funny. But I also love that he he discussed some of his failed attempts. So he 3D printed a mount that was actually really cool, even though it didn't work. Right? Yep. Trust me, you just, you just I can see you doing this. Uh, you've got to see this. One of the other comments in the YouTube video that I love was just the first sentence, this broke my brain.
0: Yep. Uh, and, uh, I'm so glad that he made it simple, right? And I try to do this with complex things in photography all the time. Uh, it takes a specific uh, amount of effort and not everybody can do it. And, uh, so I'm, I'm glad to see that. All right. Uh, Steve, thank you for opining through all of these stories. I'm glad we both agree and disagree on some of them. Uh, but we can get excited about it at the same time. Um, let's get into our picks of the week. And I I think that they're both uh, uh, helpful for uh, when we are at home and we're looking for stuff to do, uh, possibly to entertain the kids with some of your picks, possibly to look more professional with mine. Why don't you start? Okay.
1: So mine is, it's two software pieces from Charlie Monroe, Charlie Monroe uh, dot, what is it? Charlie Monroe dot net. And Charlie Monroe is a developer of Mac applications and he's got more than these two, but these two are available in a bundle where you can save money. So one of the software packages is normally 20 bucks, the other one is normally 15. Downey 4 is 20, Permute 3 is 15. You can buy them both together for 27 and here's why I'm bringing these up. I had heard our mutual acquaintance Andy Anotko mention Downey a number of times as a pick on another podcast. And I'd gone and I downloaded the demo a long time ago when it was Downy 3, and I really liked it, but I thought, you know, there's just not much. While when I need it, I need it. I don't know that I really want to spend a huge $20 on it, right? But I knew I wanted it. And then other things started happening with the stay at home and stuff like that. And let me start by saying before I tell you- What is Downy, first of all? That's what I'm going to tell you. But before I do, let me just state up front clearly- Do not download copywritten material. Don't violate somebody's intellectual property. That is not what I'm sharing this for. Downy is a software that lets you easily download videos from the internet. And I'm talking from thousands of websites, YouTube, Facebook, whatever. I'm not saying go download actual videos that have value. That would be illegal and wrong. We are creatives. We want to protect other people's property. But... I'm gonna give you the example where this came in handy for me. I upload my podcast to YouTube. And when I upload my podcast to YouTube, I need two versions of my podcast. YouTube is 1080p. But I also, for my podcast, I have an audio feed for podcast apps, and I also separately have a video feed for podcasts. And in the video feed, I only want 720p. Well, I don't wanna have to out of Final Cut Pro roll my own and export a 1080 and export a 720. Let's face it, Google's got compression galore. They know what they're doing with compression. So I upload to YouTube and then I download from YouTube and use that download because it's been heavily compressed. But here's the problem. I'm the creator. I'm logged in. It's my account. Even though I uploaded 1080p, I cannot download 1080p if I wanted to. I can only download 720, even though I'm the owner of the video. Downy lets me, if I ever need to, go download my original videos from YouTube that were put up there at 1080 or 4K or whatever. Here's another scenario that hit me. I do martial arts. And with gyms being closed, I couldn't really train. And of course, I don't have anybody to do jujitsu with right now. I can do my karate stuff, but jujitsu, I can't. Well, one of the guys from where I train, started doing live on Mondays and Wednesdays trainings. I can't always be there. I don't wanna watch it in a web browser. I wanted to download that video so I can put it on the big screen and watch it while I work out. Well, the problem with that is on most things like YouTube, you can browse through code and you can figure it out and you can find the URL for the video if you really got a lot of time. This will do it for you like that. But on Facebook, that's hard because you have to log in. So most downloaders fail. This software has a browser built in so that when the software, when you say, get this video, says, well, log in first, you can log in and then it can download it.
0: And I'm sure that there are a lot of fair use or fair dealing arguments for certain usages as well. if you're an educator and you want to have something offline, well, you're not doing a lot of in-person education right now. So long as you um, hit all of the pillars uh, that qualify for fair use, um, then, you know, you, there's lots of different ju- uh, uh, yeah. uh, justifications therein, right? And, and
1: this software is so easy. You drag the URL in. Uh, it's just – it's really wonderfully done and a beautiful interface. But then that's what happened was I went to buy this and I thought, okay, Permute. So Permute let's you – Easily convert your files to various different formats. Now, everybody uses HandBrake, I've used and I use HandBrake. You. But here's the thing: HandBrake won't take an MKV file and convert it straight to Apple ProRes. Right? Permute will take an MKV, convert it to MP4. It will take an MP3, convert it to Wave, or vice versa.
0: Anything it to will, anything.
1: Anything to anything, including Apple ProRes. It will do. It will even do batches. It will let you combine multiple PDFs together. And here's one of the big ones I've never found before. I have IT clients that have security cameras. And those security cameras record in an MP4 format that's, it's it's an an H.264 format from an IP camera. But a lot of IP cameras have something weird with the video where you can't directly play it, even though it's an MP4 this fixes that it actually it's in there. What do they call it? The permute workshop. It has a feature specifically for taking IP camera video and fixing it so that it will play anywhere. Um, Lots of settings, lots of AI going on. So instead of actually setting when you convert to ProRes, the different settings that are available, if you were in Apple compressor, um, This one or, you know, media, some other media converter app or like, you know, you can customize Handbrake to death. This one has a high, medium, low type thing and it uses AI to figure it out. It has pass through. So you're converting your video, but you can check a box to say, you know what? If the audio file in there is already compatible, just pass it through, don't convert it. So it's super fast. Love his software. And here was the weird one. And this is one of the other reasons I wanted to pick it. And I know I'm going on long. I apologize. It's all good. <clears throat> I export MP MKVs out of OBS for my podcast. I convert them, remux them in OBS to MP4. With this software, I'm like, I don't have to go through that. I can just take the MKV and convert it straight to ProRes. Well, I had a 48-minute video that stopped instantly at 32 minutes every time. And said, it's successful. I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> It's 32 minutes. They're supposed to be 48. I emailed him within probably two hours. Charlie emailed me back and said, can I get a copy of the MKV file? I'm like, yeah, Sent him the MKV file. He came back within a day and went, oh, there's a corruption in the way they're writing their MKV files. It's been known for a long time. OBS doesn't write great files because I'm using third party tools like he uses FFmpeg, I'm guessing in his code. Uh, Because I'm using third-party tools, I was able to find a way around it, and I should have a release out, uh, an update out within the next one to two days. That's brilliant. Two two days later, an update, boom, it converts absolutely fine. This guy is so responsive, I want to buy his product just for that.
0: I love that responsiveness. I love the the interactivity. When, you know, you're not going through a large corporation, you're talking to the technical mind. Uh, and uh, I, I've had some issues with with other pieces of software as well. Uh, EXIF tool was one. And I talked to Phil Harvey, who's behind that. And he said, send me the files. And then he sent me a, uh, a beta release that says, hey, does this fix your problem? And sure enough, it did. So um, I, that mentality is... Uh, so Charlie Monroe, thank you for creating the software and thank you for being so responsive to fix all of those little things, because that's why you did that, Steve. Sure. But how many other people approached him before somebody with IP footage, uh, somebody with other little quirky things. And he just, figures it out and adds that in for the benefit of everybody else.
1: And one of the interesting things was I didn't realize about the Apple ProRes. I was using his software to convert the MKV to MP4 to take it into compressor. There's a preset window that you have to kind of find. Our mutual friend, Jeff Harmon of Photo Taco Podcast and Master Photography Podcast. He, I commented on this on Twitter and Jeff said, oh, that looks interesting. I'll take a look at it came back and said, man, if I could just get this to directly convert to Apple ProRes, and Charlie went, it will, (laughs) and chimed in. It was like, dude. Uh, And by the way, both of these are available in a free trial. It is Mac OS only. If you're on Windows, I'm sure that there is some other similar option out there, but Downey alone to me is gold. It is the most amazing. You can even, if you own both, tell Downey,
0: after you download the video, automatically convert it and permute. And uh, last update uh, is on April 16th. So it's actively being updated and uh, and worked on, as you mentioned. Yep. Uh, I'm sure whenever there's something to add to it, it will be there. So I think that'll be a good investment for people. Yep. Awesome. Thank you, Steve. Uh, before we sign off, where can people find you online and more of your music? You didn't do your pick. Uh, oh, yeah, I forgot about my pick. Uh, here I am just so enamored with yours. But before I do mine, uh, I don't want your last uh, your um, uh, your sign off or your uh, locations online to be the last thing we talk about. So where can we find you? You can find me at
1: stevebrazzle.com for my photo stuff behind the dot TV for the podcast behind the shot on Instagram and Twitter. It's at Steve Brazel for me or at behind the shot TV for the podcast and uh, both are available on Facebook as well. It's Steve Brasel photography or behind the shot podcast on Facebook and uh, search me out, follow me, reach me out. What, oh, by the way, YouTube too. And YouTube, we should mention, um, we'll probably not next week, but the week after hopefully do another critique show. Oh yeah. Uh, go to Flickr, sign up for the free account. If you're not, don't want to do the paid um, and then join the behind the shot group there. Submit your images there tagged, and this is key. You can submit your images there for people to like and have fun with and do all that. If you want them to go into the pool that we choose images for the critique from, Tag them with the Flickr tag, BTS critique, all one word. And uh, Don and I are doing critique shows. Those are on the YouTube channel at Behind Yeah,
0: the they're a lot of fun. And I'm glad that we continue to do that. I just enjoy that time uh, just talking to you and, and uh, getting thoughts, uh, sort of the stream of consciousness about images that get submitted. And there's some really fun images uh, that we've talked about in the past. I think you're picking them this time. I pick uh, this time. Yeah, we alternate yeah. picking. Yeah. All right. So my, my pick of the week. Um, is something that I've kind of picked in a roundabout way before because I've picked the uh, the macro uh, or the uh, the platypod max macro bundle before which I think is still available it includes two lighter torches but if you're not interested in macro photography but you found a need for you or your significant other at home to be doing web conferencing and to look really nice as a result but Nobody who hasn't done that before has a good lighting setup. Um, Lytra torches, uh, the Lytra torch 2.0. They've got a version for drones that I didn't know they had before, but we're just talking about the regular one. Um, It has, uh, it comes with a diffuser so that if you want to have a nice, really soft look on your face, you might want to get two of them rather than just one. Um, But you can just point that I'd probably put a diffuser on that. I don't have one on me right now, but it gets really ridiculously bright. Um, On its base setting, it would last for a fairly long time, give you plenty of nice, soft lighting on your face. Two of them with diffusers would be wonderful. And at first, I didn't know this. One of the downsides about these is they work and they work really well, but their batteries don't last forever. And uh, our mutual acquaintance, Skip Cohen, uh, showed me when I was at his place in Florida a few months ago, Uh, he had them plugged in. And so... Uh, if you just plug them in to charge, uh, it bypasses the battery and just uses the USB power source for power. Um, so I thought that was really neat so that you could have them on. I'm sure at the lower power settings, uh, they wouldn't overheat. You wouldn't want to keep it on, on the high power setting for an hour. Um, it might have to draw from the battery at that point might not last that long. Anyhow, it has some overheating protections too, but, um, If you want to have a couple of these, and it's got like a little magnetic thing in it, uh, which like for certain parts of my wall, there's like metal in the wall and I can get it to stick to. Well, it sticks on that one just fine. Um, Stick to there. It's got a tripod mount on it. So if you already have a tabletop tripod or some other bit of gear like that, uh, a light stand or, you know, again, Platypod has their whole kit with gooseneck arms and whatever else. But this. Uh, for web conferencing, if you have to show your face on a camera and you've never been prepared to do that before and you want to look good, uh, it's a modest investment. Uh, Right now they're on sale for $72 each. That sale ends at the end of today, but I'm sure that there are other sale prices or places where you could find them at a slight discount. Um, And uh, even the regular price of $90 for one of these, you'd be setting yourself up with a good investment far less expensively than any other professional lighting scenario by the time you get involved with like wall mounts and LED light panels and, and so on and so forth. Something as simple as a little lighter torch uh, will uh, make you look much more impressive to those that uh, that now you have to speak to. And with.
1: don't let the, the you can still order them like at B and H.
0: It says request stock
1: alert, more on the way, two to three business days. So they're out of stock now. That doesn't mean you can't order it and then just wait for it um, because they're really cool.
0: They are and. Uh, yeah, there's other companies out there that make things like this. Loom Cube is another, so on and so forth. They all have varying prices. I think Loom Cube has one LED versus this one that has a four by four grid, which I think might diffuse light a little bit better for the purposes does. that we're talking about. I have Loom
1: Cube and I need some of these actually.
0: Yeah. Um, So uh, that's my pick. Uh, It's multi-purpose. You can charge it to your business if you're using teleconferencing for that and then go walk into your studio and use them for macro photography. So double purpose. Uh, You get the tax relief on that one at the very least. All right, Steve. uh, Thank you for being uh, on the show again. It's always a delight to have you here. Um, Looking forward to having you back on again. Maybe when we record the the next critique show, we can do a back-to-back. That's always fun. Until then, Thank you, everybody, for listening to the show. I appreciate the comments and feedback that I get. It's usually positive, but even if you want to complain about something, I'll listen. And so, with that said, it's time to stay in and shoot.